Cork. Uranus. to the uh, 57th episode of the Stardust Podcast. I have to have a little think there because we've in between this we've had the triumphant return of the no longer dead under the patio. Ralph. And we've had, I couldn't think of what him was there. That, that time under <laughs> the patio has, has had an effect. Once again we are here for your delight and excitement to talk about um, some aspects of pop culture which perhaps do not have the correct amount of attention focused upon them, or perhaps shouldn't have any attention focused on them. Or perhaps the attention they have focused on them is the wrong type of attention, and we are here to correct your viewpoints. So, talking of viewpoints, uh, one thing we've mentioned before uh, on this most exciting of podcasts of all is uh, that thing known as YouTube Roulette. Now, YouTube Roulette is is a game (laughs) anyone can play. There are no winners. (laughs) There are only losers. It's just how, how little you lose by. So, you know, normal, normal people might think, ah, this evening I wish to watch a certain thing. Um, alternatively, uh, by so go to television or iPlayer or YouTube or whatever, um, or some people go on YouTube and they go, I want to watch a specific thing, which I happen to know is there, or have a look to see is there. No, 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 no. If you're mature people like us, you just type random words into YouTube, and then you follow the sidebars until an item of joy might present itself. Yes, so last night uh, it didn't go off to a great start with... Well, I tell a lie, the Sonic fan film was... It was it, a fan film. It did have a very good drinking game attached to it, is that they kind of kept Sonic hidden for quite a bit, uh, and called him the Blue Blur. And basically, the idea would be, if you want to watch this Sonic fan film... Uh, is just type in Sonic fan film on, <laughs> on, on, on YouTube and yeah. take two fingers of alcohol uh, or if you've got a shot down it every time the word blue blur is mentioned yes uh, Dr. Robotnik uh, the evil chap that's got like evil spaceships and he sort of takes over this planet um, he's, he's basically played by a chap who really really wants to be Dennis Hopper in Waterworld but actually looks like uh, Prince John from Maid Marion and there's many men from BBC One. An interesting combination. Uh, so, so, so the fight back is led by Sonic, uh, who's often referred to as, we say, the blue bar. Over take two, over take two over. fingers. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really understand Sonic the Hedgehog. I've never understood Sonic the Hedgehog. So uh, it looked like it was well done for that type of thing. The, the uh, voice of Sonic was from one of the cartoons. It was one of the voice actors, Jamil Alina, I think. I'll double check and put it in the show notes anyway. I believe that was the name. Yes. But, uh, so, so there was that, so then we thought, that's not quite brushed Batman fan film. Now, now, before we preface this, now, we've encountered, and Ralph has brought to our attention, the gold standard of Batman fan films. We speak of Defenders. Bat- Batman Defenders of the Night. Batman Defenders of the Night, which, uh, which was funny until the people making it caught down to the fact that people were laughing at it, and then they made deliberately funny sequels. So the third one, basically watch the first two, mm-hmm. and then stop. Yeah. Anything after. But, so that's... That's the, the gold standard of entertaining fan films. Obviously, Batman Dead End is a different beast. Mm-hmm. That's the Batman Predator one. Yes. It's a really well done one. Now, 
previously before we caught a, a Batman fan film which had uh, the implied in- there, there was there was there was the Batman fan film where uh, Batman was fighting a regular criminal chap not like a super uh, super villain or anything like that was fighting him um, he was overpowered in a warehouse uh, Batman was struck up from the ceiling and then the villain moved in behind Batman uh, and insinuated that Batman was to enjoy the ride ha 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 the screen would missed out Missed him. <laughs> Just like your eyes in tears of abject terror. I would missed back, and from the way Batman was hanging and the way the villain was acting, and that, it was quite clear that Batman had been bummed repeatedly uh, through the night. Now, I remember uh, watching this because there was no warning for it with this fan film because it was actually quite well produced. It was well lit, well shot, uh, semi-professional, a standard Batman versus Hoodlums type thing. So there was no the the sudden shift in tone. Uh, to Batman fighting people to Batman being bombed in a warehouse was somewhat unexpected. There, had there been a hint of it, I would not have chosen to watch that particular film. Because who gets up in the morning and thinks, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend a lot of time, money and effort um, filming a thing where Batman um, gets surprised in a way that um, he shouldn't be. Uh, but you found one that went, went even further, didn't you? And pretty much you just get to see it kind of on screen. Uh, it's called Death of Batman. Don't watch it. <laughs> I mentioned this to Ralph, and I kind of, not in a, we're not going to watch it, it's just, oh, no. unfortunately encountered this, be aware of it when you're looking. So we kind of, and then we went looking for kind of bonkers science fiction B movies as our go to. Uh, well, ah, but before we got We to tried it, for Peter Cushing. We tried for Peter Cushing, we got nowhere. Because uh, we have found Peter Cushing, there are also Peter Cushing films but available. We've seen them. We've seen them. So, but obviously the way YouTube works is things get put up, they get taken down, they get put up. To, so it's all sort of a fresh search. Now, before we got to the B movies, we, we did we did find a lot of joy. We found uh, David Icke. David Icke. <laughs> Who now, was David Icke? David Icke was at one time a professional footballer and a reasonable one, and then became a TV weatherman. Yes. Uh, yes. And sports yes. reporter. Sports reporter. Yeah. And then he basically, I think about 1890 maybe, uh, went. How can I put it? That shit fucking mental. And started wearing a lilac shell suit proclaiming he was the son of God. And since then, he's kind of evolved into this mad fuck nugget conspiracy theory yeah. spouting. <laughs> who is who is very entertaining. Yes. Is a very good public speaker actually. He is a very good public and speaker. And yeah. by all accounts can go can do one of these for four hours. Yeah. Without stop. So we watched uh, an extract somebody put up from one of his uh, stage shows yeah. or presentations basically talking about how we're all holograms we are all holograms Andy because the universe doesn't actually exist our and physical bodies don't actually exist until we observe them yeah and there's a good bit where he talks about how he was in a bath and then this being appeared before him and explained reality to him and it's how it's all calm and still because we are all possibilities and all things at the same time mm-hmm. and basically anything that vibrates is an illusion yes and Life is an illusion, his, his shirt was an illusion, a rent's an illusion, he said. Yeah, uh, all of these things are an illusion. So basically, you don't have to do anything. It's true. You know, I'm not going to pay my rent anymore. David Icke says it doesn't exist. It's true. Uh, the thing is, is, it's all the stuff that you've heard, and it's like, I remember Warren Ellis using bits of this in Planetary with the vibrational planes, the snowflakes, the theme. David Icke's also got some very entertaining lizard men. Uh, Scared, yes. Series. Just go for David Icke Lizard Men on YouTube and you'll get some joy. So, but thanks to that sidebar, we found some joy and we went we through did. it and we watched a film called Journey to the Seventh Planet. What is Journey to the Seventh Planet? Well, Journey to the Seventh Planet was a 1962 science fiction film. It was directed by Sid Pink, 
written by him and M. Melchior and shot in Denmark with a budget of only 75,000 US dollars. The seventh planet is, of course, Uranus. I'm going to edit that bit because you're going to see the proper name. Uranus. What do they call it in the thing? Uranus. 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 Sorry. I, look, it was last night. I'm trying my best here. But they, call, they keep calling it Uranus. Yes. And it makes it... And every time they say it, take two fingers. This... Uh, <laughs> It was comedy gold. So, so it's a spaceship, right? Is it the UN? Is it the year 2001? 2001, that's right. Um, Man peace, stopped waging war on it. Is yeah, there? peace reigns. And uh, a, a spaceship crewed by men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sent into space. Um, and it, it's... Well, is it fair to say there's a subtext in this film? Uh, <laughs> not so much. Uh, as I said last night, not subtext... Uh, super fabulous text. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There is a, a lot of repressed homoerotic tension. And now there's one incidental detail about their uniforms. Now they basically just wear what looks like uh, uh, overalls from a, a car garage. <laughs> they've got a UN badge, and just the way the design is, if you look at it the wrong way, it looks like it says cunt. Which is quite unfortunate. And because it's on screen quite a lot, and you just think, cunt. So basically, these chaps go to uh, Uranus. Uh, they've been dispatched there by the UN on a mission of space exploration. And basically, uh, as they get too close to landing, an alien presence briefly assumes control of the crew's mind. It's a good alien presence because it's one of those ones that's like a, a voice but then the kind of wibbly lights yeah. across the screen. Uh, not a gas cloud, unlike Star Trek. <laughs> I do like my gas cloud aliens, you know. It's always a winner. Yeah. So they awaken safely, but they, they don't. They notice that there's been a, a period of time elapsed. But not quite clear, but one of the chaps had a, an apple in his hand, which has since deco- uh, basically decomposed. This is a chap that we thought was Irish. Uh, wasn't actually Irish. No, he is meant to be Irish because uh, I'll get the cast in a minute when I when right. do this in <laughs> Again, it was filmed in Denmark. Uh, nothing against no, nothing against the Danish myself, but. Uh, the game was pastries. True. And uh, a lot of good football players. And uh, Lego. Yep. So pastries and Lego, basically. And um, don't they have windmills there? And Rock Garden. But they've got windmills, haven't they? They've got windmills in Denmark. Yeah. yeah. And windmills are good. No, they're not home. Shh, the same thing. They've got, <laughs> they've got windmills there, and windmills are good. That little bit of casual racism was sponsored by Ralph Burns. The ship has an airlock. Now, there's a set thing, it's got some like old uh, valves for yeah, cannon, yeah. and it has, a, it has like airlock open, mm-hmm. and the valve mysteri- turns mysteriously. And you know how an airlock is actually a small pressurised chamber with a door to the chamber. The door then shuts to seal the chamber, then the exterior door opens. That, that's generally the purpose. That's because, because uh, it's to, to lock air inside this small Whether we're doing a spaceship or a submarine. Pressurised vehicle. Yeah, yeah. No, what the airlock actually is, <laughs> is just the door to the inside of the fucking ship. They have a design flaw. And then they climb down a ladder straight out of B&Q. They do, it's a good It's not a landmark landing gantry, it's a ladder. Not at all. And uh, the mysterious surface of Uranus changes to trees. uh, Through time-lapse shots. Yep. Uh, And they find themselves uh, in a forest, Mm -hmm. but it's surrounded by a mysterious barrier, and one of the crew pushes his arm through, only have it frozen. Now this is young Carl. Young Carl, the star of the show. Young Carl, who, who would appear to be, uh, how can I put it, the uh, ship equivalent of the human slot machine. 
That's true. Uh, it's quite clear that all the other um, astronauts lust after Carl on a regular basis and uh, try to carry favour with him. Uh, Carl seems alternatively both bemused and confused and sometimes oblivious to this, uh, yeah. to the repressed passions on the spaceship crew. Which uh, is a shame, he could have found love. That's true. Uh, the new features and forms begin to appear each time and they're imagined by the crew. Basically, they, they get attractive women who they, they've met previously in the past suddenly appear. Basically, none of them, none of the crew actually bought the kind of like, why are you here? You can't be here. This is all crazy. They just kind of go along with it. Yeah, and as you would. They investigate. They manage to get through the barrier of wearing what can only be described as a Daft Punk's uh, outfit during their ill-fated and ill-chosen Banana Man phase. I liked the Banana Man phase. It's, it's splendid stuff. It is. And so they get through, and the creature that's there, that's controlling everything, uh, basically gets some images from their, their innermost uh, fears mm-hmm. to torment them. Now, a one-eyed pink monster is the terror of Carl, which they inexplicably think is something because he's got a fear of rats. Yes. Now, this thing looks about as much like a rat as I look like fucking RuPaul. You don't look like RuPaul. They this can see what you look like. This thing look, does not look like a rat. No, they keep calling it a rat, but yeah, it's, it's like looking at a dog and saying that's a cat. Uh, and basically, there's also uh, there's a lobster-like insect, apparently, in, in one of the films. But however, we have the US version, which we watched, which had stock footage of Tarantula, which was from, what was the, was it Earth versus the Spiders we saw? Uh, years ago, my, my gaff. think so. There is a, there are, there's a whole subgenre of giant superimposed spider films. Yeah. I do like a giant superimposed uh, insect of some kind. It's been a while. Uh, it's always good, but I'm kids today are missing out on that. Not the CG specialist. Well, not, not even necessarily anti-CG, but even you know, stop motion and yeah. stuff. It's like there's a place for that, and there's a time for people to be coiling in horror because a giant bit of stock footage of an insect has appeared, and they've all went ah shit and dropped their pants. So the crew realise that they've been victims of mind control by by a gigantic one-eyed brain living in a cave. And so they confront the being whose mysterious brain cuts their innermost thoughts of the explorers and causes their thoughts to appear, seemingly real, which is obviously how the women appear. Well, the brain being wants to possess one of the astronauts' bodies and have them taken back to Earth, but will implement a plan for global domination. Basically, they overcome it. The captain of the ship uh, has his his woman comes to kind of help him, which seems bizarre, and he takes him on board as they escape. And she fades away at the very end. Yes. Leaving him with the only time he actually emokes in the film. And he generally looks like someone has taken his shit up on his shoes. Someone, <laughs> someone has taken his ball away and won't give it back to him. And then the film ends and it cuts to a, an end credit scene with a beautifully, beautifully sang ballad it's called a, Johnny to the Seventh Planet. It is. It's a lovely little ditty. And even though some effort in the credits with names floating across the screen yeah. and... It goes. It's, it's really quite well done. Now, the, the people involved in this are, uh, say, the, the cast. There was Captain Don Graham. Now, the captain isn't really in charge. No. He's just there to be a sounding board to the, the, the main guy, uh, Eric, who's the one that seems to do everything. Uh, so you have, who's played by a chap called John Agar. Yep. Uh, Eric is played by Carl Otterson. Now, Carl, the young lost object, is played by Peter Munch. Uh, Barry O'Sullivan is played by Ove Sprogo. That's a great name. So that, that's why we got confused, because it's like yes. trying to do an Irish accent in Danish. That's a culture clash and a half. I can do that. I can do oh that. Oh, God. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. I'll do one. I'll do one. Oh, hello there, Begona. You've come over to the Fair Emerald Isle. Hi. Would you be having some Guinness there? 
Aye, and I left. Right, and if you're Danish, now let's think about this. If you're Danish, a Danish accent would be. Please don't do this. <laughs> no, 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 no. You've already just told me that, that, that Sweden and Denmark and Norway are all different, right? So a Danish accent would be, hang on, would be, hello over there, I'm on the spaceship, right? So if you have a Danish to an Irish, it would sound a bit like, hello there, I'm on the spaceship, hi, have some begonia. So that's basically what he sounds like. I've now replicated the effect of, of the, the film for you. Yeah, so as you can see, it's obviously uh, not, a, not a great cast. Uh, the film is... Free? Free, because it's on YouTube. <laughs> uh, I certainly wouldn't fucking pay for it. But it was entertaining in a once, watch once train wreck kind uh, of way. Uh, 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 it's, it's entertaining in a watch with company with a beverage. Yes. Not, not necessarily an alcoholic beverage. Just could be some caffeinated or coffee. But but there's someone to, to share the amusement with you. Yes. And it's the correct length for the B movie. It's about an hour and a quarter. Yeah. Which is what they should be. 77 minutes. <sighs> 77 minutes. And thank you to whoever went on Wikipedia and wrote up some detailed information about this yes. film. Yes. Uh, and it was a... Basically, an American international release. Uh, our friends who brought us uh, the Roger Corman. Yes. Because uh, there was quite a few musical cues in that film that were actually taken from uh, the Raven. Raven and other things. So. So oh. um, yeah. So YouTube related. That's uh, that's what I'm done. Isn't that amazing? But you know what, Andy? Yeah. There's other types of relate. Yes. yes. Just the relay of the comics by the Comics Marks. Yes, so uh, just a couple of weeks ago we were at the Edinburgh Comic Mart. Uh, one, because it's been a while since the Oxfam did their comic mart. It was like two years ago we did last yes, year. Yes, yeah, yeah, that seems to have uh, come to natural end. So this and also because uh, there was a couple of guests. Uh, one of the people who's had uh, a uh, far-reaching influence on both our, our lives, uh, Simon Furman, Simon, the living god, for Furman, yes, the Furminator himself, and a uh, friend of the podcast, Mr. John Paul Bovee, uh, aka Wordmonger on Twitter, who nearly killed me at Assembly last year, and I've forgiven him for this. And uh, he does the covers for Transformers Regeneration 1. Yes, and he's also the writer... A comic which the internet seems to rag on a bit, but which we genuinely enjoy. Yes, in a non-ironic <laughs> way. Yeah, I actually do quite like it. It's the one that's the continuation, or a continuation, because it's, it's, there have been previous continuations, but it's um, a continuation of the Marvel US Transformers series from um, the 80s and early 90s. And yeah, I, I, I genuinely enjoy it. Does it have flaws? Yeah, but... I wouldn't buy it if I didn't like it. Yes. So, um, so, so they were there, um, ostensibly to do with that particular comic book and other stuff and various guests. It was a, a new event, a new event for Edinburgh. It was small, but that's fine because it's the first one they're doing. Also, free. Yes. Uh, don't charge anything. For something that's free, it has a few wee talks going on during the day. I think it's perfectly reasonable. But of course, uh, one of the things you have. Um, is, is the ubiquitous back issue bin. Yes, so uh, now I was the ultimate uh, victor on the weekend scoring the uh, Battle of the Planets TV comic uh, mm. ahead, of the, ahead of Burns also getting all four issues of Brute Force signed by the Furminator himself which has been my long term goal having acquired Brute Force several times Yes. Uh, which we I don't think we fully featured them before. No, we did. We, we did one of the very earliest oh, ones. Oh, see, see. Now, now this must be what it's like for uh, a famous actor 
and Star Trek or Doctor Who or whatever and people ask them about episodes and they can't remember them or do them. No, we We've didn't. Reach that. That. I've, I've now reached that level of fame. Mm. <laughs> Reading this comic, because Ralph read yes. this comic just briefly before we recorded this, has a word to basically we're having a look for uh, some uh, particularly shit comics called Triumphant Comics because we have six issues from Phil that we'll be doing probably the next podcast I have yet to look at these six issues I've read them and forgotten about them which uh, will give you an inclination of ours now, we've, we've read Triumphant before you even ripped one up on the podcast I did indeed which I still do not approve of I do then not then it was recycled I, I, I don't approve of, of had I popped it straight in a recycling bin you wouldn't have bumped your guns would you I, I don't like what seeing, happens when it goes I don't like to see no literature should not be ripped up in front of my eyes I don't like it I don't like okay. it it's bad can I just say, don't say do. I have to refute that with literature triumphs and comics it's still a form of literature it's, it's writing on a page anyway anyway so we went looking for uh, some back issue bins I picked up some some joy uh, mm-hmm. and some extreme justice Dear. which I have a, a soft spot for I like Firestorm alright and Captain Ham. But I went looking for a really bad comic. And you found a genuinely really bad comic. I, I did indeed. What is this comic called? This is from uh, Malibu Comics, and it's part of the Ultraverse imprint. Mm. Now, I hear there's probably a few people listening to this going, but what's that? Ultraverse has some really good stuff. And you'd be right. Uh, Ultra Force was written by Warren Ellis for a time. Prime, mm. which was kind of an update of uh, the Billy Bats and Captain Marvel thing, was very good. Hard mm-hmm. uh, was pretty good. Uh, no, I speak of one of the uh, post-Marvel acquisition titles ah. where they had a crossover between some of their established characters and some of Marvel characters in a kind of way to kickstart the new revamped Ultraverse and obviously just make some money. So I speak of the first issue of three of The Nightman and Gambit. Now remember, there are no, good, no, no bad characters, only bad writers, except for Gambit. Gambit is, is a hateful character. It's like, I'm sorry, okay, you've got mutants, right? I can understand uh, genetic mutation. They go, ah, I've got enhanced brain power. Ah, concentric rings, concentric rings. Or, ah, I can fire energy blasts from my hand. That, that makes sense to me. Or, oh, I can fly about. Or, oh, I can absorb powers or, or stuff. Um... I can't accept magic playing girls. I can't well, accept that as a... As it's a, it's a, not so much that's not as power, that, to be fair. But that's what he does. No, I know, that's the thing. That's and what he talks him. like a shit face. Yeah, that's what makes him shit. Is his power is... He, he, can, he, can he can charge objects with kinetic energy. But it's okay, so, okay, so if I'm throwing things, maybe, you know, like a, like a knife? Or like a, a rock? Yeah, or, or ball bearings or something? Uh, anything not. But fucking playing cards. cards. Yes. Well, talking cod French pish. He's, he's trying to speak. That's Cajun nothing against the French. It's just not, against cod Frenchness in comics. Not, it's not cod French. It's cod Cajun. It's, it's, it's always. Mean, I know that. It always, always sounded. Yeah. It always sounded cod French to me as a kid. So this is the Nightman Gambit. She won by uh, perpetrated by. Let me get the this page. Oh, yeah. uh, David Quinn was the writer. Now he did. Uh, Doctor Strange during when he got split into the three characters. Oh yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dietrich Smith is the personal penciler uh, whose work I'd never heard of before Norm Rackmund who was an anchor I've heard of him mm-hmm. Patrick Owsley was letterer Andrew Kovalt was colour design Malibu was colour now this is why Marvel bought Malibu was to get access to their computer colouring yes uh, 
The editor was a chap called Roland Mann. Uh, there was an assistant editor called Gerald uh, De Victoria. Phil Crane was a production editor, and I heard of Phil Crane on some credits. And also, there's a thanks to Ben Rapp. Oh, no comic which says thanks to Ben Rabb can be a good comic. Apparently from that Union Jack he did with John Cassidy is still good. I've heard many people whose opinions I actually do agree with and have similar tastes to me have said you will enjoy it. It's well, not brilliant, but it's good. In the same way that uh, every good creator has a turd in them, every hack has one shining nugget of joy. Yes. Now, before we actually start the comic, can I just point out as you open it, yeah. you're faced with the shittest advert in quite some time. Does anyone out there remember Hypernauts? No? No, you don't remember Hypernauts? I, I can well understand why. Hypernauts was a extremely shit space uh, show made by some of the minds involved with Babylon 5. Uh, to give you an idea of how shit this show was, let's just read what the advert says. Get Hyper. There. Hyper-cool galactic explorers trapped behind enemy lines. Their mission, to fight the alien armada and take it home to the planet Earth. Make it home to planet Earth before it's too late. The future of the universe depends on them and you. Hypernauts from the producers of Babylon 5. Starring mech suits, Sharky, Max and Ace. And basically it was three shitty little kids being smug, arrogant bastards in their shitty, cheap mech suits doing cheap shite activities every week. It was pish. It was pish. It was pish. Uh, I was not aware of Hypernauts at all. Uh, I imagine there um, probably is. And it's like, I will check right now. Okay, so you check that while I, I, yeah. I have filled the dead air by talking about the actual copy in the question. You, 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 you go for it. So basically it opens with uh, some imponderously pompous narration. It's got a shan- It's basically set outside the X-Men's West, Westchester home. Or, you know what you could actually call it? Professor Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. Epic fail, first of all. This could be the first comic someone's reading of X-Men. I Unlikely, I think you need to, uh, to read the... Card I'm about to read the, the pomp- pompous thing, but I'm merely pointing at the biggest flaw right away. Uh, and it's got a shadowy figure there. So, the storm cracks, the sky beating hard on the X-Men's Westchester home. To the stranger, the lights inside burn like a last chance. Last chances don't burn. Like, the tip of your wingland sometimes when you've got, well, you know. Mm. But, no, last chances don't burn. They're generally quite good. You grasp them, they're, they're, they're joyful things. Uh, so you then cut to inside and you've got Gambit on a sci-fi chair, inexplicably in full clothes uh, of his outfit and wearing his stupid cockbag jacket. Yes, he's fucking about with a playing card. And he's talking to... Uh, Kandra, one of the externals on the monitor, who'd previously tried to kill him and several of his teammates not that long ago. The sole mutant in residence, Remy Laveau, the one-time thief known as Gambit, is no stranger to chance. Though tonight the cage actually declines an invitation to gamble. Kandra, on screen, uh, says, Come now, Remy, you're my sweetest partner and adversary. Have the ex-children dulled your spirit so that you refuse my proposition without even hearing it? Gambit now speaks. I, I can do it. I'll, I'll do it. I don't want to set you off again. Come back to you in a moment. Okay. Hypernos uh, is on YouTube. Okay. Have a look. Uh, I think I know you, Kandra. If this proposition excites you, it's bad news for me and mine. Sorry. And she goes, How dare you? So that's your first page to the comic. She comes out with even shut dialogue in page I two. No. No, no, no. Just, no, it's worth reading on page two his dialogue. Now, bear in mind, this is a comic to get you interested. 
What does Gambit say? You might be going, who is this woman on the screen? Why is she asking for help? Yeah, ma petite folie, excuse me, but the day comes easy. True, we had a little magic between us, but every time we dance, you try to torture, kill, or enslave my friends. No, that's the words, torture, kill, and enslave my friends. Why are you talking to her? Yeah, if I'm going to step into that again, I, I want even odds of respect for myself at the end of the evening. Whatever you sell, I want none of it. And he's still fucking about with the playing card. Meanwhile, shadowy figure outside gets some narration again. Ah, the stranger has been homeless in this world that, that's so far, yet so close to his. But he's come for the refuge Wolverine offered, if it's not too late. His rasping voice murmuring unconsciously, and he's singing, eh, one of you, one of you. Uh, it's just fucking up. This is not how to introduce a crossover of an event with any characters. I barely, if I wasn't an X-Men fan, and aware of who, yeah. who Gambit was, he's just a dick in a chair being a wanker, Talking uh, to some woman who apparently kills all his mates who's begging that, and, he, that they get together. It makes no sense. And she's asking for help, and she's desperate to make a new life for herself, and she's looking for his help, and she says that she's found a doorway to another world, like her. Like, As you do. But without Newton's externals or guilds, they can start over. And he's just basically gets an alarm going off and just goes, Meh, I'll call you back, fuck off. Meanwhile, the shadowy figure outside is uh, cutting the uh, wiring outside, which is always exposed. Now, come on, this is the fucking X-Men who have alien hardware in their fucking... They've got a holographic danger room, a plane that can shield itself, that can fly faster than the speed of light. And this dick's cutting some fucking wiring, and that's going to be a problem? Well, maybe that's a, like a weak spot. Maybe, maybe they, they, they would never expect somebody to come up with some wire cutters. I says, gee, this is just some bush league pish. Uh, and basically, by using these wire snips, this is like the little fucking Rob Schneider cutting Hammerstein's neck cables in the 95 George Dredd film. It's a war, ro- war robot, it's not going to have fucking exposed wiring for a knob head to cut. Anyway. Yes. Well, uh, it's not a good film. Uh, he's, preparing, uh, he's, he's preparing an advantage, he disables the Sanctuary's alarm, reasoning these ex may, may not all be as brotherly as Wolverine. Yes, he's a stranger here, but on his world, Musical fragments never hammered at his concentration, obliterating all other thoughts from his mind. This, and, believe it or not, is actually then, the best bit of the comic, because if you think it's gibberish now, yeah. you have no idea who gibberish this and is about basically what happens is that you get to see him in full light, and it is the night man, basically his skin's all, uh, all fusty and pestering it, and the narration continues, nor does his skin erupt and peel away, the hor- horrible deterioration spreading more quickly every moment of the Nightman's exile on the earth of the mutants. Zakum! And the title of this issue is called Shedding Skin. Shed so Gambit turns up shoving his cock at, at uh, the Nightman, who inexplicably has his back to him at this point. Yep. Going, stop right there. I don't much think, think you're going to like me if it forced me to stop you. No, that might hurt. And he chucks playing cards. Fucking playing cards. And they tell you that obviously the Nightman's met Wolverine and the Nightman Wolverine issue zero which is quite helpful now considering he's referred to it twice already in earlier pages and not had that at, at least they got there in the end yeah and then there Gambit's basically going ain't the first time I was wishing I had a dollar for school and every lowlife gutter crawling trash saying he got business with old claws what the fuck is this horse shit dialogue you've got to my accent it's your worst uh, you know what Vince is Gambit he's got a shit accent anyway you've got to be kind of eating there oh fuck you but he's <laughs> London as well I do what I want. It's really bad. Uh, you bought it. I, I did. And this wasn't even a charity box purchase. I knew this was, this was a start-up podcast. 
Mm-hmm. I knew we needed a good Jet Corbett. And seeing as how he's been away for a while, we had to come back with a winner. Okay. And basically, there's an interminable fight scene with bollocks being talked by both parties. Uh, with Basically, it's just trying to show off how good the Malibu colouring department is, because it's not showing off how good the artist is, and the dialogue's fucking atrocious. Uh, there's an advert for Street Fighter Alpha. Yeah. Um, just a reminder, you can now play Street Fighter Alpha in the comfort of your own home. On Sega Saturn or PlayStation. Meanwhile, the comic starts again. And Gambit punches the dude out and then takes away and he says, oh look, his face is melting. And... Oh, okay, just... Yeah. Now, they have an advert for uh, our comic back issues. No, uh, subscriptions. Oh, sorry, what could you get? What could you get? Um, you could get um, 2099 comics, uh, you get Marvel Hero stuff, uh, what have you got? You get Daredevil, you get Daredevil. Uh, Beavis and Butthead comic existed at the time, as does the Ren and Stimpy Show comic. Uh, there we go. Um, that was interesting. I enjoyed that page. Good page. I did. Uh, and then you cut to... Uh, now, the Nightman's going on about Rhiannon. Uh, not the song. Uh, but on the Isle of Man, on that other earth, yep. uh, sort of place some called the Ultraverse, within a great pile of a castle that stood stained by blood and fire when English was new, uh, home to one rumour to be the immortal inspiration for the Medea of the ancient Greeks, though the great queen prefers her local name, Rhiannon. She's looking at a big magical well that shows her what's going on in the Marvel Earth. Uh, and she's all kind of bored up. Because, yeah, uh, push up. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's one of those cliché um, <laughs> women in comics where they have enormous pneumatic breasts that are barely covered. And uh, with a collar, because they must always have a collar. And uh, it's just like, oh for fuck's sake. And outside there's a doppelganger of Nightman who looks exactly the same as the other one, except he isn't covered in weeping sores and shit. And it's. She's basically got people in a dungeon that she's going to kill to absorb their energy by the looks of things. Uh, I she's, she's going to take their hearts at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out that the young Nightman in this world is disintegrated as well, it's just not as far advanced as the doppelganger. And it turns out only Rhiannon can cure him, but she wants uh, the Nightman to be her consort for eternity, be, basically being a cannibal and staying alive. Does he do? So Rhiannon then, uh, well, basically changes into a... Uh, Still has a push-up Ranacorp, now has shoulder pads straight out of spawn, and a, a light purple cape. Yep. And she's absorbing energy, and she's taking the doppelganger uh, Nightman. Uh, there's an advert for Exiles, which was relaunched <laughs> at that point, which had some of the, mar- the, ex- uh, the Juggernaut and Sienna Blaze teaming up with the Ultraverse's Exiles title. When you're saving the world for price on your head, attitude is everything, partly. Yeah. Meanwhile, the comic uh, starts again. Uh, so basically back where Gambit and the other Nightman sprawled out on a chair. Uh, turns out uh, Rhiannon appears in basically gold glowy form. Gambit takes off his coat to give her something to wear. Uh, and she basically just goes, your charms are wasted, fuck off Bobag, I'm here for uh, John the Nightman. And she basically says, uh, he may be the only chance to be here, and if you don't allow me to reach my man, I shall reach through your bleeding guts. Dear. And she's basically saying that he should have regenerated once he joined his counterpart for, uh, on arrival. And she thinks she's killed, basically caused both of them to die. And apparently he's going to be uh, helpful in sort of helping her. Then basically, Kandra uh, is in her 
Her thing, and she's wearing a, a, a towel and not much else, mm-hmm. and she basically looks to be making up some kind of poultice. Some medicine, yes. A poultice. Yes. And basically, there's an advert for Generation X, the TV special. Coming uh, soon to Fox. It cuts up. Yep. And it turns out she's, got, she's stolen the other Nightman do- doppelganger. Ooh. And it's to be continued. There's an advert for some shit up the back. Yeah, there's other ultraverse stuff. Uh, Written by Ian Edg- Edgington. I'll forgive you, Ian, because you did Scarlet Traces and you've done uh, Stickleback for 2018. You are a really good writer. There's it's a sex exploitation ad for something called Mantra. Uh, yep. And there's uh, just some stuff. There's some Star Wars trading cards on the back. And it's quite nice because they're shooting stuff out. That was dreadful. That was actually, and but yet still. Probably not the worst Gambit comic, comic you could read. Because actually, to be fair, as shit as Gambit is, he's not the shittest thing in that comic. No. Uh, he is surrounded with a miasma of shit, no less. It elevates him to the lofty heights of mediocrity. It's true. That is, that is the comic's worst crime. <laughs> is that I read it when Gambit is actually bearable in this particular comic. That I should never have this and, emotion. And it's not because he's actually bearable. It's, it's just because the, the uh, level of shit above him is so high. He and he's basically like a midget in a sea of, of, of shite that's like giants. It's basically like, he's, he's like Warwick Davis sort of flanked by Peter Mayhew and David Prowse. Pretty much. Pretty much. So I'm, I'm glad we picked this first to kick off. I'd hate to end the podcast on this because it's just, it's, it's, it's fair to take the wind out of my sails. It's true. So now we're going to take a short break. Uh, because basically otherwise I'll end up self-harming. And we're going to uh, come back to something we've long promised and put off because we're procrastinators of the highest order. It's and time to continue our Doctor Who comedy marathon from last year. <laughs> uh, yes, we're going to watch... Uh, um, oh, God. Revelation. That's the one, yes. yes. Uh, starring... Uh, Roy Tromley. Roy Tromley, the favourite Davros of uh, Little Philip Ayers. Hello, Philip. Hello, that is his favourite. Yes, because his favourite Davros story is. Um, it's not Destiny. It doesn't like Destiny. Destiny and Alex is harsh, yeah. Yep. Really um, so we're going to watch a good Davros story and then we'll, we'll come back and share our thoughts. Share what So, you'll be entertained with some uh, Doctor Who theme music. of the Daleks, uh, the last study of series or season, whatever you want to call it, 22, in the space year 1985, ending on the 23rd and the 30th of March of that year, which is, as far as I'm concerned, was last week. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's very disparaging. Um, so yes, so, uh, there we go. It stars Colin Baker as the Doctor, the Sixth Doctor Who. It's written by Eric Sayward and directed by Graham Harper. And the back of the DVD case 
says this. I'll, I'll not go. Um, the, <laughs> I was going to do a voice. I won't. Um, what voice are we going to do? I don't know. I was trying to... Uh, are you going to do a Dalek voice? I could do a Dalek voice. Go do a Dalek voice. Hang on, hang on. The Doctor and Penny arrive on the planet Necros. Oh, oh, oh. Tranquil repose after the little home for the galaxy's elite. What is this? The doctor's own final resting place? And why do Daleks guard the inner sanctums of the perpetually interred? Perhaps the great healer will have the answers. So, um, so that's, that's what the story's about according to the, the back of the DVD, which was released in uh, 2005. Uh, what, I, what I think I might try and do is the special features in the Davros impersonation. Go for it. Special features include a COMMENTARY BY NICOLA BRAN! <laughs> and we'll stop because we're off as neighbours. Yes. But that's the Teddy Malloy Davros. Yes. It goes from whisper to shout. Indeed. It's very ranty. So, um... Yes. So basically, to... Recap, the last we saw of Davros was they were on a Dalek ship and uh, the Mavellan uh, Spooge virus was erupting. That's right, Dalek that's casing. right. White foamy stuff was spurting out of them as the Doctor ran away. And it looked like at that point their spaceship was going to blow up and the, da- the Daleks and Davros were dead. But he survived via a handy dandy escape pod. Yes. Um, no mention of how he overcame the Mavellan the, virus. The Spooge virus. Well, yeah, wibbly wobbly, I'm sure, you know. And John Peel can take care of that during the <laughs> wank of the Daleks. Yes. Um, so, Davros ends up on the planet Necros and gets involved with a place called Tranquil, Tranquil Repos, uh, which is basically where, not dead people, but people who have got like, terminal illnesses and the like, going to be put in a state of suspended animation. And uh, while, while they're suspended, you know, they get kept up to date with current affairs and so on via information streams. We have to hope that perhaps one day, like Walt Disney, uh, they can come back to life and yeah. they roam around the galaxy once again. So um, that's the roughest of it. And uh, the Doctor and Perry arrive because the Doctor's friend, who's never been mentioned before, uh, yeah. apparently died. So he's gone there to pay his last respects. Professor Stengos, one of the foremost agronomists in the galaxy. It's true, yeah. it's true. Um, so, basically the structure of the story is that if you, the Trunk of Repos is a place where all the characters must go. So the Doctor yeah. and Perry spend the story going there uh, to meet Davros, who is basically at the centre of it all. Um, there are other characters, such as there's some assassin chaps. Uh, there is Orsini, played by William Gaunt of the Champion fame, and Esquire Bostock, who have been charged by one of Davros's partners and funders to uh, basically take him out. And they plan on doing... The assassin is basically uh, a sort of honourable style chap with a Esquire who very much puts me in mind of Michael Keaton's performance in Much Ado About Nothing. That's a very cultural uh, reference you put in there. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 pretty like good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Almost unheard of. I know. Usually we talk about oh, it's like that time in episode five of Star Trek yeah. from 1969 or whatever. The only place was a dogberry and uh, much ado about nothing. It's kind of what it puts me in mind. Or the other way round, obviously, because this precedes uh, that by several yes. years. But so the Doctor and Perry make their way there, exchanging barbed dialogues and encountering uh, mutant chap, mutant chap who. Uh, 
played by uh, in one alternate universe potentially uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier because yes. it was one of the roles that GNT approached him for and this was during his uh, desperately trying to keep the show alive and in the public eye by doing a lot of what's now commonly known as stunt casting and happens actually quite regularly in Doctor Who now Indeed. and funnily enough most of the fan base now don't seem to have a huge problem with it No. whereas back then any time there was an, an incident of stunt casting, they lost their show. Perceived stunt casting. Yeah. I mean, the, probably the you have Beryl Reed in Airshock, who is fine and perfect for the role, but yes. got lambasted because all she was in Carry On. Mm-hmm. Ken Dodd and uh, great show in the no, Delta the Banner in episode one. Delta the Banner in episode one Turnbull. Just I hear Ken Dodd and I think Circus for some reason. <laughs> well, that's understandable, but. Uh, and uh, obviously this one also I can see how trying to remember which story uh, Ken Dodson could be a, a, a taxing issue for you yeah uh, uh, see what I did there I did see what I did there I did I did like indeed oh yeah. mm. okay move on yes so anyway uh, so we'll stunt casting now it's not to say that this episode isn't without stunt casting because there's uh, the DJ who is responsible for sort of putting voiceovers and messages, personal messages to the, the forward, like a hospital radio DJ, uh, is played by uh, TV uh, comic Alexi Sale. Yes, he was quite well known on television at the time. Yeah. He's still, he's, he's still fairly successful today, uh, yeah. but it was quite well known at the time. Yes. So you have basically Davos has positioned himself as the great healer and in addition to using the bodies in Tranquil Repose to uh, make new Daleks, uh, he also uses the rest of the people that aren't for Daleks or bits for them to make food source in, well, some the finer soil and green tradition. Yes. Uh, so he's become known as the Great Healer. And so the Doctor and Perry have their, their conversation as you see what's going on in this uh, sort of funeral home. And you have. Uh, Clyde Swift plays Joe Bell, who is sort of the main embalmer, or the, the chap that basically is the famous dead look prey. Yep. Uh, and he is a vain, arrogant man with a fine wig. That's a very fine wig. Uh, and creepy. Yeah, oh, he's very... He's probably one of the most rapey characters in Doctor Who that we've seen. Uh, he's... Yes, he has um, unpleasant designs upon the ladies that are, I would... I'm one of the criticisms, I would say it does... Watching that up, skirt the edges a wee bit of... Good taste. Good taste, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's but on I, the edge. In all fairness, though, we are dealing with an Eric Seward script. Subtlety was never exactly uh, 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 the of his. He has such a, he's got such a canning voice, Eric Seward. You know when you yeah. see him in features, he's, he's got the voice of Santa Claus, I feel. Yeah. He should do talk books. And he, you have, obviously, Joe Bell, sort of the, one of the movers. You have Tarkis and Lilt, who are uh, one of the Robert Holmes double-act characters, yep. who are in the background, who kind of adjutants, orderlies, heavies, and sort of involved in everything, but kind of constantly in the background, but not too prominent until later on in the story they're brought in more. Yes. But they are, in any sort of major scene, or one or both are there or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. And you have Tassenbeaker, who is this dumpy, frumpy, middle-aged student of Joe Bell's who absolutely loves him. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but this is one of the times that, if you listen to uh, Doctor Who DVDs with the commentaries on, yeah. uh, a common feature when Eric Sayward is on is he will tell you what's wrong with the story and why something doesn't work. And this is probably one of the few times where it's not his fault. Yeah. Uh, what Witness and, and get time flight, it's a horrible story, 
But if you listen to the Time Flight yeah, yeah, Infinity, yeah, is when he's on it, uh, Janet Fielding skewers him quite pointedly when he talks about how the story is doesn't work and things don't go, and says, you were the script editor, Eric, why didn't you fix it? Indeed. In a joking fashion, but you know right away she's basically telling him, shut the fuck up. Indeed. But Tassin Beaker is very bad. The delivery is poorly yeah, judged. Yeah, she's... she's it's, it's not a good character because all the idea is that um, she worships Jobel, who is a horrible, repulsive human being. He treats her badly, and she doesn't seem to notice that um, she's so badly stars unrequited love, and eventually will kill him. Um, so it's actually a, it's, it's an interesting character to play, and um, the actress is not very good. No, don't know she. Yes, so. The Doctor and Perry, meanwhile, are weaving their way as all the political intrigue and the like is going on. Indeed. And the uh, Doctor is sort of realising with the mutant chap that he encounters, oh, there's something a bit fishy going on here. So there's... Now, this is still during the phase of the Doctor and Perry kind of hating each other. Yeah. And you can see that the two actors are trying to fight against the dialogue which they'll do much more successfully in the first story of the next season, which is 18 months away. Not in podcast terms, I mean in real life terms. Well, I don't know, it could be 18 months away, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, in their podcast. Yeah. But they're trying to fight against it and try and make these rather barbed retorts between the two of them as more banter. Yeah, that's one of the criticisms, because one of the things that Eric say when they go on about is is very critical of the character of the Sixth Doctor and all the bickering and so on, so he puts it in. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Again, you're the writer script editor. and the script editor. And the script editor. You don't need to put it. But you know, it's not. I mean, it's usually bothering me. It's not as it's not as overpowering as in other stories. No. It is Again, at this point, it, I think obviously Colin then being firmly established has a little bit more leeway on set about being able to I think the, right things. the bickering doesn't annoy me as much in this because they're on the move. Yeah. There's more in previous stories where they have terrible scenes and standing about, standing about and, and bitching and whining. Yeah. So, uh, and the doc, as they're doing this, obviously, it turns out that uh, the two assassins are actually basically just going being exploited by Eleanor Braun, previously in City of Death. Indeed. And her uh, camp secretary, yeah, who is brilliant, Hugh Walters. Yes, he, who will have in the second episode the best death scene. It's true. Also has one of the best lines in Doctor Who. Yes, uh, he's a past master at the double entry. Indeed, he is. <laughs> and it's delivered. He knows what he's saying. Yes. It's, so uh, the the assassins have basically been given a little box that apparently is a transceiver to uh, alert uh, her to. That's they're in Davros's location, and look, we'll send in our troops to stop Daleks, Davros's allies. No, it's a bomb. Oh dear. Now they kind of know about them. They are they are they're not stupid, and the Squire and the uh, Knight do kind of think that. Yeah. But he's hell bent on a noble death. Yeah. Uh, he's apparently the Grand Order of Oberon, and he's been excommunicated, as we'll find out. The story goes, and he's looking for a noble death. Uh, so he's kind of it's basically if you're looking at Bostock and Orsini the two characters Orsini being the knight Bostock the squire it's basically Don Quixote and Sancho Panza again a very cultural reference for me there it's good eh it is apparently the knight man in Gambit has broke the brain apparently yes <laughs> uh, 
And hello to Chris McFeely, who, has ne- who hadn't heard about this comic until he tweeted him about it. And hello to Nick Roche, who forgot yes. to say hello in the last one. That's true. Oh dear. Or possibly we didn't, depending on if the Eurovision one happened first. Ah, it's all with oh, oh, oh. It's all uncertain. Oh no. Uh, so, the episode ends with what can only be described as a really shit cliffhanger and the worst crash doom that the couple of One of, one of the great joys of the Colin Baker period of Doctor Who is that most episodes would end crash, not only with a crash zoom, but often a crash zoom onto his face. Yes. This is almost like a subversion of that, yes. because it's a crash zoom onto his face, which is on a really shit statue falling towards uh, Colin. Because they happen to be in the Garden of Remembrance, and this triggers, oh look, it's my statue, I'm dead. Uh, I thought I was good for a few more regenerations. I kind of thought at this point, it's like, well, yeah, I can kind of see what you're going for, but uh, you kind of do die when you regenerate, in a sense. Yes. So that's not to say these people might not know you're a Time Lord. Indeed. So they could have still done the statue anyway. The conclusion I would leap to is, uh, I'm dead is, hmm, apparently something happens. I've been, this is the, I've already been here in their timeline. Mm -hmm. That's just me. Okay. So it ends with the statue falling on and to his apparent death. However, he does not die. No, he just gets covered in, well, uh, spooge, some spooge, yeah. muck. And at this point, at, witnessing this is uh, who comes along and goes all creepy rapey on Perry. It's, yeah. in, in all fairness, it's not exactly an uncommon event to happen to Perry in Doctor Who. No, pretty much every uh, story has um, unsavoury uh, people lusting after her, which is... And one of those things that was not noticeable to me as a kid, but it's incredibly noticeable as an adult. Is, yes. Yeah. You would see that she is the most objectified of the, the female companions. Probably, yeah. I, I think definitely I don't see any of them coming close. No. Uh, but this is when uh, now Joe, Joe Bell arrives, when the Doctor obviously sort of appears again and goes, nope, I'm not dead, I'm just covered in muck and I'm a little bit annoyed. Him and Joe Bell ex- exchange barbs. And part of me kind of thinks, looking back, is like how much of that is actually Eric Sayward giving Colin Baker a bit of a kicking. Yes, though. Yeah. Because he didn't agree with the casting of, of Colin Baker and didn't think him a good choice for the Doctor. Didn't say anything, and he's been a bit of a dick about it. It's why if you watch any DVD or listen to any commentary, you will have Colin on it, and you will have Eric on it, but never the two of show me. Because of the rather... Uh, Poor taste interview Eric Sayward gave to Starburst, or no, sorry, uh, it would be, it would be Starburst, Starburst interview, yes. and to DWB and the like when he left the post of script editor. And the character of Orsini is actually a rebuttal to Colin Baker's performance as uh, an assassin chap in Blake 7. Yes, and oh, I, and I just watched this episode of Blake 7 just <laughs> last week, what's it called? City at the Edge of the Something. Yeah. City at the Edge of the Horn. He's the greatest the assassin in the be galaxy. Be something the butcher. Be Ban the Butcher. Be Ban the Butcher. I was going to say Babar there, but he's, he's a shell of him. That's true. Oh dear. Um, yes. And so this was a pointed rebuttal to do mm-hmm. that. Uh, which, again, you kind of at that point, looking back at it now, go and the, the Joe Bell barbs are very personal to the Doctor. Yeah. And in all fairness, they kind of almost work, but it's a, it assumes a level of knowledge of the character 
that Joe Bell doesn't have at this point. Yes, the doctor's rude, but in all fairness, if you just had a statue fall on you, you're not exactly going to be at your best. Generally, I mean, statues fall on me Exactly. So you get the feeling looking at it, it's like, no, there's a little bit of bitchiness in here that's, that's there because the script editor is having a bit. Yeah. Which wouldn't surprise me having sort of read, read enough interviews and listened to enough commentaries and interviews with Eric Sayward. He is at times an incredibly petty, small-minded fucker. Coming voice, well. Yes, still yeah. a petty, small-minded fucker. <laughs> anyway, as it goes in, Davros has now uh, inveigled himself with Tassenbeaker and wants Joe Bell killed. Mm-hmm. Now, Davros, I should point out, is a head in the centre of a big, massive TARDIS-like console, actually, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. It does kind of look like a, mm-hmm. like a, like a bit of a TARDIS or something. Like Dardis. A Dardis, no. Moffat, Dardis, 50th anniversary, get it done. No, Valley Yard first. Valley Yard in a Dardis. Yeah. Do it. With your tech co pilot. And the Banjo Ambassador. Oh, that'd be amazing. That's all we need. That's all anybody needs. Anyway. Back to the point. Yeah, so he's in the room and he's basically he's watching everything. That that is described during it by uh, Cara, played by Eleanor Braun, as uh, the spider at the wet, the heart of the wet. But it's pretty much true. He's he, obviously Davros, as we all know, is in a Dalek, a prototype Dalek travel machine. Mm-hmm. Only has the use of one hand. Yep. Uh, so mobility is not really big on his. Uh, no, no, no. He's a little mobile chaps. So he does influence things through conversation more than anything else. Yeah, because he's, he's pretending just to be basically like a head in a jar, yeah. basically. So he's basically whispering words in her ear and basically going to use her to kill. Now, it's not qu- not quite clear why, considering he's got Daleks in, in tranquil repose. He could basically just go... He's a bit off his head. He's a lot off his head, actually. Space Mengele is talk to him. It's true. Uh, so he's using, he's basically sort of getting Tassenbeaker and doing the whole whispery seduction of, of power speech towards her. Uh, meanwhile, the president ship's about to land, so it's all it's all the strands are coming together, mm-hmm. uh, and basically our two chaps, Takis and Lil, uh, they don't they're kind of like mm, this is all bad. We we like tranquil repose before. Mm. Despite the fact that they're not actually good people, no, right? they're, they're, they're are. one of the problems with the story for me, um, and one of the reasons why a lot, there's a lot to enjoy it. It's probably my least favourite of the Colin Baker TV stories. There's no nice people in them. They're all horrible and unpleasant. Well, no, I don't like anybody. Well, no, I, I'd have to say you, you cannot like all of them. But what I will say is the DJ's not an unpleasant character. He annoys me. He's annoying, but he's not unpleasant. He's Again, no, when he comes in, he's actually quite... Winning. Yeah, but, but I suppose you should qualify him Mark by saying there's no one I care about in the story. Yeah. I think the D- DJ's fine when Alexis Sale stops the Americanism, which he's doing deliberately, and just yeah. has the guard down with it's, it's one of those difficult performances, to be fair, where um, DJ's he's trying to put on a character of a DJ. Who are usually... In terms of... what well, we don't mean DJs like the... Uh, the Judge Jules, uh, Pete Tong, yeah, uh, the Syndex, we mean the, oh, so the hospital radio, yeah. BBC DJs that we all know and now pretty much assume all were paedophiles if you... Well, Let's not talk about yeah. current affairs and BBC yes, uh, and stuff, it's very depressing. Um, but, the, you know, but, but the problem with the DJ character is that when he does do the persona, that part of the performance is awful. 
and it just every time he does it, it's just like no. But it's deliberate and it works in the context of the story. In the context of the story. But yeah, because the only other characters are you have the mutant who dies, and it's like, well, yeah, unfortunate chap, but you really don't know what he was like before he was mutiny. Yep. You've got the two grave robbers who are in trying to free the the, the, the chap. Yeah, now it's the, the woman is really unpleasant. The other guy just looks like a feckless drunk, so you kind of feel like they bullied all the time. Yeah. They end up dead. Uh, again, the whole it's, it's kind of the hallmarks of an Eric Seward script. Everyone will die. Most people are unpleasant, and everybody dies. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there's any that, that don't. Well, the 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 chaps who to, who summoned the other Daleks to come and get Davros. They're the only ones that survive. Tarkus yeah, and Luke. Yeah, they, they survive. Yeah. That's about and the random extras. Though. Random extras. Yeah, but it doesn't make it doesn't matter. Yeah. So it's it's a funny story. Um, I, I think it's a good it's a good little science fiction serial but I don't like it as a Doctor Who story um, because it, the tone of it just feels quite unpleasant and nasty at times now, but yet at the same time I enjoy it but I don't, it doesn't feel like Doctor Who to me that's the problem it's, it's not because the Doctor isn't in it much the Doctor actually is in it a fair bit it's the whole structure of the story is it just keeps cutting between disparate groups as they head towards the heart of Tranquil Airpost and one of those groups happens to be the Doctor it's, it's, a, it's like a Almost like a kind of Doctor Who doing sort of a, a Robert Altman style thing where it's intercutting stories yeah, all yeah. so, coming together for he's, a payoff. Yeah, he, he, he contributes to the finale, he's there and all the way through. So one of the common criticisms is that, he, that he's not in him. That doesn't bother me. It's just tonally, it doesn't feel like Doctor Who. As, well, well, we'll come back Which to Which is that one of those well. stupid statements, I suppose, yeah. when you think about it, because Doctor Who can do many things. Yeah. But, but generally with Doctor Who, is even when it's grown... There's a like, baseline hooshness. Like, like, yeah, like Caves of Androzani and the like, um, yeah. which, is, which arguably is more violent and uh, nasty in some ways. But it makes you care about the characters, it makes you care about what's going on. But it's, yeah. I don't really... I'm intrigued to see what happens, but I don't care. care. I'm not emotionally involved. So... The upshot is, the Tarkis and Lil go, right, I like this place before, so uh, they get more Daleks to come. Now this is the key point, for Davros was brought back by a faction of Daleks to uh, overcome the advantage, or the stalemate that the Mavellans had with them. This was not a popular decision, and the Daleks, some of the Daleks were just, wanted to kill him. True. He started brainwashing some of the Daleks to become personally loyal to him, because although they brought him back, is very much in a subservient role. Mm. So that's reflected by the livery of the Daleks loyal to, loyal to Davos are white and gold. Which is quite, quite a nice look, actually. Yeah, and uh, as opposed to the normal sort of gunmetal grey and black. Well, I tend to think of as the Genesis Daleks. Daleks yeah. yeah. Uh, so Tarkus and Luke summon the gunmetal grey chaps to come in, and they want, they want to shut Davros down. Meanwhile, Orsini and Bostock get in. They destroy the console that has Davros in, but it turns out to be a decoy. Davros has just been sitting in an antechamber nearby, Did obviously controlling the, yeah, the yeah. Davros animatronic. Fires lightning from his fingers. Didn't they throw Emperor from the the Jedi trip? Yeah. Uh, and the, the Davros also has a flying chair at this point, yes. which is, again, the common misconception is Daleks can't climb stairs, oh, but we did it in remembrance. No, Davros did it before. Yep. Um, but uh, meanwhile, Tassin Beaker has killed Jobel mm-hmm. after her storyline comes to a head, and then and she gets killed by a Dalek straight after. Which is good because, quite frankly, we'd had enough of her by this point. Oh, because 
the delivery of the scenes as it's written is very effective and very powerful. Yeah, I can see what it's going for. And I can, as again, going back to the criticism of Eric Taylor, it's one of the few times I would agree with him. It's like, that's a great scene that she's killed. Because uh, Clive Swift uh, is playing it well. Yep. He's, he's got it spot on. This is a vain, pompous man who, because of his stature in terms of his job, uh, is allowed to get away with a lot more than he would. And she calls him out on it. Mm-hmm. And she eventually kills him. Mm-hmm. And he dies the ignominious death of being injected with some kind of embalming fluid and his wig falls off at the end in a nice touch. Yes, it's, it's just well done. So, Orsini and Bostock, poor Bostock, it looks like he's dead. Yep. Uh, and Orsini gets his artificial leg shot off. So, and the doctor's marched in. So we're all coming oh, together. Yeah, everything's coming all together. Come together. So you get uh, Davos and the doctor have a little bit of an exchange. Uh, not quite to... Not as, as it's, they're not pontificating each other this time, no. which is kind of what they've done before. It's been kind of, with Tom and, Tom and uh, Davros, it was platitude against platitude, mm-hmm. and to a little extent uh, with, uh, with Peter Davison as well. Yep. Yep. This is actually a, a rather antagonistic conversation. Yep. Uh, neither one has the upper hand in terms of the, the, the banter, it is very snide remarks at each other. Uh, Davros is getting ready to get, basically get the upper hand. Uh, and he's about to awaken all his Daleks, mm-hmm. and with his one good hand, Bostock shoots it off. He no longer has the upper hand. It is, he no longer has a hand at all, except for the one that's wizened and doesn't work that's in his chair. Uh, and the Imperial Daleks come in at this point. Yep. And, well, Davos yep. is basically... He gets carried off, ranting away. But the best point of it is, he goes, but this is the Doctor, this is Emmy, you should capture him. And the yep. Doctor just, in one of his finest dick moves, just goes, Doctor? No. Who's that? Oh, who's that? And Dad's got, oh, well, he doesn't match the description of the Doctor. Well, so he's regenerated you, Phil. So like, nah, we'll, he'll, you. we'll wait to verify your claim. And just as the Doctor, Davos, about to wait, he extends his hand to shake it. Shake Davos' <laughs> yeah. now bloodied stump. Which is, that was well done. It's like, out of arm's way. Yeah. Uh, some very nice dick moves from the Doctor. True. Uh, which I wish we'd seen more of from, from the Colin Baker Doctor. Yeah. Right? Because he did have that you got some of it in, and we'll probably talk. We will be talking about a length in the trial of the Time Lord, where he does, when he does feel he is superior, he will mm-hmm. use. Uh, but unfortunately, some of it was a bit childish in trial at times. No. No. The 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 slack yard. I love all that shit. I, I, I think love so. It. I love it. But what I'm saying is, he's bet he could have made better remarks. No, no, no. You're wrong. I am. You're wrong. No. Wrong. Anyway, so. It all ends with Orsini triggering the bomb to kill Bostock. Mm-hmm. Uh, Davros being carted away for trial but escaping, because obviously you're not going to kill Davros off in the Daleks. Uh, and the Doctor giving the, the, the survivors of uh, Tranquil Repose an idea of how to replace the human food, human dead body food right. stuff yeah. using the blue flowers. Blue flower, which has got a lot of protein farmed. So yes. they saved um, the universe. And then the Doctor, Perry goes on a proper holiday. And the Doctor ends with, all right. I'll take you to, and it cuts off. And gives you this thing at the end of it. Now, it was going to be Brighton, and it was going to be the Nightmare Fair. Yeah, I think it was going to be Blackpool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Blackpool. Yeah, so it was Blackpool. I do apologise. Not biggity biggity Brighton. No. Shame. A bit <laughs> Just saying. Yes. Anyway. And if you want to find out about the Nightmare Fair when you went to Blackpool, there was a novel, and later adapted by Big Finish. Yes. To Apple. And it was part of what would have been 
season 23. Yes, but we got a better season 23. We did. We also got the 18-month hiatus with Doctor Who. And Which like, people are still screaming about to this day, oh, 30 years later. That's true. <laughs> Which, so, so that's the revelation of the Daleks. So, going back, I, th- I would agree with some of your things. I do think it feels like Doctor Who. I think the problem is, uh, and it's, it's the Davros Dalek problem, is you don't need both. And if you have Davros in, you don't need the Daleks. He gets, they're not interested. The Daleks could have been... There is nothing that the Daleks do in this story that could not have been done by random monster A, random monster B. It could have been the Mechanoids. Could have been the Ogrons. Yeah, it could have been the Banjos. No, because we'd have, we'd no, have, no, have no, the Banjos. But no, no, um, there's nothing... You're right, there's nothing particularly Dalek about them. And it could have been one where... Um, Davros has exactly the same storyline, but he's turning people into things. He's oh, got a new experiment going. To, because the thing is, he, he talked about... The Daleks, he didn't, because the Daleks didn't work out for him, they which, rebelled against him, so he's probably like, like what Big Finish tried to be, but as well, as well, I'll just, I'll just do one thing then. Yeah, and arguably probably would remove, I think, probably most of your concerns about that. Uh, yeah. not, not about the unsympathetic of the characters, because that's just Eric Sayward's right. But you've got Daleks in, there's a certain expectation of what they do and what they should do. Mm-hmm. And it's good to subvert expectations every now and then, yes. but they should still be, how to put it, is this should feel distinctly like, no, there's a reason the Daleks are in this. Yeah. There is no reason there are Daleks in. Now, you could have had the the Imperial ones at the end absolutely coming back. Oh, yeah, to get yeah. That ending's fine, but having the random Daleks throughout, no, yeah. you, you don't need them. They're just... Window dressing. Now, let's talk about death scenes. Because there's a fuck ton of them in this. There's a lot of death. Uh, it's Eric Sayward, there's a lot of death. Uh, the best one is uh, Hugh Walters. Hugh Walters as Tara's uh, secretary, who is fantastic because he basically plays it for all it's worth and oh, yes. every bit of screen time out of it. It's not extra death scene, it's an actor death scene. It's true, uh, he, he does the writhing and yeah. falling backwards and a pause to look at another character and then a fall over. Yeah. It's quite well done. It's beautiful. Uh, a little end of the scale. Uh, Alexi <laughs> Sales death. Yeah, he just he just goes ah, and then just falls in his nose. Yeah, uh, it's just uh, Swift's sort of death scene is fantastic yeah. in terms of how he portrays it. Where basically Tassin Beaker buries, as I say, the syringe of uh, bombing fluid. Now the problem, the only thing that's wrong with it is the way it's staged is he leaves the room because she's basically saying look I'm risking my life to tell you flee with me now and you'll survive if not I have to kill you and he goes why would I ever want to go with you you pathetic little creep I'd sooner run away with my mother and he walks out to the other room and she just stands there for a moment and kind of half runs half walks shuffles after him holding the syringe in in a way that's like no you could knock her the fuck out before she hit you with it Yes. So she, again, slightly over, over theatrical. But when it when it's buried into him, he's kind of like, you can't do this. Joe Bell. Joe Bell. And he as he he falls down, camera's pulling back from him, making him smaller. Which again, yeah. there's no you're reducing the character and stature, which is what the whole point of the death scene is, both literally and yes, and obviously dramatic from a dramatic old standpoint. So it pulls away, and just as it does, his wig drops off mm-hmm. the, the final sort of humiliation great death scene uh, the, the uh, exploding uh, 
snacks out at the start, we go sit in the lake, yeah. which we've, we've kind of glossed over because it makes me chuckle all the time. I know. Uh, and the mutant, de- the mutant, when he's fighting the Doctor, screams all the time. Now, it made me laugh more today than it normally does because prior to this, we were in the supermarket just getting some food for a bit of light lunch we're out wandering about, and there was a child screaming in the way that only children can, which is constantly, without pause for breath, and with gusto. As if, as if they are being played alive. Yes. But, uh, I mean, it must have been from the other end of the supermarket, because we could see no child, yeah. but we could hear the child. And the, ah! the, ah! oh, and the only time the child paused came back an octave higher. True. Beautiful. Poor <laughs> parents or guardians or whoever was after that kid. It just kind of was like, oh, kids, yeah, they're okay if other people have them. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, not in the uh, yeah. Let's not go there. Okay, so Revelation of the Daleks. Um, that is that's it. Yeah, it's a good story. Again, we also great performance. Roy Tromley as uh, Davos. Davos. Yes. Now, Michael Wisher was the one that breathed life into the character way back in '74 with uh, Genesis, Genesis of the Daleks. Daleks. And we've had we had David Goodison in the Destiny of the Daleks. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about Destiny of the Daleks. No. Yeah. And besides, we talked about in a previous podcast anyway with yes. uh, Phil, uh, the fan of uh, Death of the Daleks. It's true. And I mean, the fan. Yeah. Uh, but to me, Roy Tromley is the default Davros, and when I hear it, Wisher is a fantastic performance, and had Wisher been cast and been able to do more of them, mm-hmm. absolutely would be. But Roy Tromley is the best. And uh, Davros is a character that stands outside of the Daleks quite well. Uh, I do recommend getting, if you can, get the big finish audio Davros. Yes. Uh, which is Colin Baker. It is, in effect, pretty much a, a sequel to this. It takes place straight after that, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, and it also has uh, Bernard Horsfall, Indeed. The, the late Bernard Horsfall, yeah. uh, who was Chancellor Goth, as a businessman looking to exploit Davros. Uh, similar to kind of how he ends up in the great healer type. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he also then, the next story he has is in the Juggernauts. Juggernauts, which has got the mechanised in it. Uh, he's good, Colin Baker's good, the story, not so much. No. But that's more to do with the, the fatal flaws, he's using the mechanoids. Yes. The mechanoids have only been good in one, one thing, which is the Dalek uh, comic strip. Yeah, they're great. That's the only time I've actually enjoyed the mechanoids. Uh, and also, uh, was it Terror Firma? Yes, there's Paul McGann uh, storyline. Which uh, has, a, has Davos. He is with his Daleks, however, it's quite an unusual one. And kind of... That's the other... The latest one was the... Was it the Davros? There was... The Davros yeah. mission, which was... was giveaway uh, one. Giveaway one. On the good. DVD box set, which was also put up as a download. For a pound. Which well, is, yeah. again, set yeah. straight after Revelation of Daleks, when Davros is on the ship being taken to have his trial with the other Daleks. It's not too bad, there's some comedy characters on it who do unbalance it somewhat, yeah. but uh, it was, didn't cost much. He was also in um, another Colin Baker one, and I can't remember the name of it at all. Something, something Davros. Uh, it's the one where his mind gets swapped with the Doctor's mind, their bodies. It's an entertaining story, but the problem is it's the first return of Davros for a little while. The Curse of Davros. The Curse of Davros. Curse of Davros. It was after Big Finish couldn't use Davros for several years, um, because the BBC had him. Yeah, there's kind of a, a, an understanding between them that they can only use certain... If certain characters are in play with the BBC... Yeah, then they'll ask to leave it alone, which is 
Fair understandable. Enough. It's a, a, an ancillary property to the license. So. And of course, uh, I'd also highly recommend uh, I Davros, the mini series, Big Finish did, which um, is about the early life of Davros. It's basically I, I Claudius. <laughs> oh, and, yeah, and, if, and it's deliberately It's deliberately in, on the last, uh, there's four, it's a four part story in part four, there's a wee making of, and uh, Gary Ross and the like do quite openly cop to, yes, the structure we're following was I Claudius, right down to the name. And also, it has Nider in it. Yes, and it's it's always on sale on Big Finish. Yes, it's fantastic, I do have that. And again, so this is the the capper, so we've we've gone through Colin's first full season. Yes, and the bit he did before. Yep. Yep. So, So, there will be a pause for who knows how long, and then, at some point, at length, at at great length. So what are your thoughts about the Doctor as he is now, compared to where he was at the start? Because obviously, Twin Dilemma is the story that gets kicked about, all the time. We both love it because it makes sense that the Doctor, he had, regeneration is about his cells being renewed and, and the like, yeah. and it's kind of usually done after a big traumatic event, but he was bloody poisoned, so it's bound to be slightly different than from, oh, he fell off a mast and broke his fucking bones. Yeah. No, I still enjoy yeah. the Doctor. He's, it's, I, I like a Doctor who's a bit superior, who's a bit barbed, and properly alien. Yes. He it's, is the no way human. And also, again, I think standout of the, the series is obviously Colin. He is fantastic yeah. in this. There's a great range, and I think the the biggest failing in our Doctor can be traced and put down entirely to Eric Sayward, a script editor, Indeed. who has not, uh, due to his again, we can now pretty much speculate and, and say uh, his dislike of the man as the, the lead doctor did not do him the ju- the justice he should have done. And for more information on that, read The Life of Scandalous Times with John Nathan Turner, where you can see some of the memos and the like that Sayward wrote. I have yet to read this. This book has been passed to a friend of the show and previous stunt, stunt Ralph the Captain, who is currently on holiday and deciding to read the last grimmest bit of it by all It is one of the most depressing books I've read in quite some time. To be honest, I think it's probably something we will actually talk about when we get round yeah. to uh, Trial of the Time Lord and working our way through that, because it'll probably inform some of the things that we'll talk about. Uh, not so much the salacious stuff that's in the book, no. but the actual the way it influenced what was happening at the show at the time, and the dreaded behind-the-scenes chaos. Anyway, so this is the end of the podcast. It is, so we'll be back uh, in uh, two weeks' two time. Weeks time. Or maybe we've already been back, I don't know. I know, we're sorry. Uh, Okay. Until we're back on a, a regular schedule, then you'll be doing these, I have no idea. Uh, there will be uh, the triumphant comics will be uh, yes. be looked at. As to what else we'll talk about, uh, I don't know. Oh wait, we forgot to talk about... Well, I haven't read it yet. Okay, we'll talk about it next time. Next time we'll talk about the Penny Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, UK comic. So we'll probably talk about a couple of issues by that point. Yes. Uh, I've only secured my issue today, I'm not taking it with you. Yes, so uh, it looks... I kind of glanced through it very nice nice yes. artwork some nice colouring okay. Mr Cardi and well written story by a friend of the podcast Mr John Bob Bobby yes, I, shall, I shall read it in due course and we shall talk about it yes we shall indeed so uh, goodbye we'll see us in two weeks time goodbye 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 Andy or you won't be exterminated by the Daleks twitch the machine off now now, go on then, come on, switch the machine off.
dum dum Oh my fucking idiot. <laughs>